Open your Bibles with me uh, or your device to the book of Romans, chapter 16. Perhaps you have one. Have you ever sat down with a family album or sat down with somebody that has a family album? And you crack that thing open and, and the people and the stories and, and the character of the people all, and, and just these different things come out. As you look and you go back in time, you remember the interactions that you've had. Uh, you remember good times, tough times, perhaps sorrowful times, all of that. Well, in the first century, they didn't have pictures. <laughs> but I, I cannot help but think that as the Apostle Paul is perhaps pacing back and forth there in Gaius's house in Corinth, uh, dictating to a scribe by the name of Tertius, we'll see his name this morning, that, that the memories were just flooding back to him because as he wraps up this letter to this church at Rome, uh, he has a lot of things to say about different ones. And, and it's interesting because he starts out talking about individuals and then he goes from that to talking about, uh, there's some stuff in there about couples and then he goes from there to talking about people that are in the same household to people that are in the same group, probably in the same house church, because the church was organized as house churches in the first century. It, they didn't have big cathedrals or anything like that. That, that came later with, uh, with religion. So, but anyway, Romans, you just want to remember here, it's, it's, it's a letter to real people, to ordinary people like you and I. I mean, it wasn't written to professional theologians, as theological as it is, deeply theological, the most theological book in all of the New Testament. But we can't, we can understand that, but we, but in understanding that, we can't move away from the reality and the truth that this is also a personal letter from a man to a church. This is personal for the Apostle Paul. And, and the first half of chapter 16 forms sort of a mental family album with him. He reflects on those whom he knew who were both important to him personally, also those who were part of the family of God at Rome. Uh, here's something that I came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He's one of my favorite guys. Uh, he says this, he says, they were like most of us, commonplace individuals, but they loved the Lord. And therefore, as Paul recollected their names, he sent them a message of love which has become embalmed in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, it is, be, it is permanently there. Do not let us think of the distinguished Christians exclusively so as to forget the rank and file of the Lord's army. Do not let the eye rest exclusively upon the front rank, but let us love all whom Christ loves. Let us value all Christ's servants. <laughs> he ends with this. He says, it is better to be a to be God's dog than to be the devil's darling. Chapter 16, verse 1. Paul writes, I commend you, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So the first one here in the lineup, the first page that he flips to in this mental photo album is this woman, Phoebe, somebody who had become very important to him that he knew was important to the church. She was uh, more than likely it was Phoebe that carried this letter to the church at Rome from Corinth. That's where Paul was when he wrote it. Now, her hometown is listed as Centria, and, and Corinth is on an isthmus. It's, it's like you hear the isthmus of Panama. It's a narrow strip of land and there's a body of water on each side, and the Aegean Sea was on, on one side, and then the, the, the uh, another body of water that, that had the name of Corinth, I can't remember it right off, on the other. Well, there was a small town, a suburb of Corinth called Centria that was to the southwest, uh, southeast, about nine miles. So she was part of the church at Corinth, even though she was in an outlying area. So... Uh, it's also understood that because he uses the word here, uh, when he talks about, uh, 
she was a servant. That's the word deacon. Diakonos is the Greek word. So, and she was in that church. She was a diakonos or deaconess or church worker in the port of Centria. Uh, Paul also asked for a special welcome to be extended to her in the Lord. He uses that term in the Lord. And that's what he says here is, is a welcome as befits the saints. In other words, she's the real deal. Treat her well. Uh, they didn't have phones and they didn't, they, they had couriers that did everything back then. And, uh, Paul, we see in other parts of the New Testament, other writings of Paul that they often sent letters along with people because there were people that were there to spy out the liberty that we have in Christ. And that was the case. They were people that were, there were frauds. And so he's saying, look, receive this letter from her. She has other business. She probably had other business in Rome, but which would explain her offering to carry this letter as she went about that business. So what he says is receive her and help her. Uh, she'd been a great service to Paul individually, to the church as a whole. Uh, and the way in which Paul speaks of Phoebe indicates that she was probably a widow. He doesn't talk about her husband. And typically in their culture, they mention the husband first. We'll see that as we go. And But she was probably a widow. Uh, she was probably well healed. Uh, she'd had business in the, the capital in the capital city. So we don't know a lot about her other than that. Uh, but she, we also know that she was known to have a significant ministry in the church there in Corinth. Whether it was formally or informally, we don't know. But she was uh, an active part in the local congregation. So that's Phoebe. Verse 3, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks, their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So now next we have Priscilla and Aquila. This was a couple that had a long history with the apostle. Uh, in, in, in the year 49, I've got to backtrack a little bit. Uh, there was a persecution that broke out against the Jews in Rome. Emperor Claudius issued a decree that all the Jews had to leave the city. Well, among the Jews that left, Aquila was a Jew, uh, was this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, they traveled from their home in Rome to Corinth. That's where they ended up locating. And it was there that they met the Apostle Paul, uh, who was at that point on his second missionary journey. Uh, if you, uh, I spent a fair amount of time trying to trace these things out uh, in preparing for today and, and you got to understand now, we're talking about Acts chapter 16, Paul and Philippi, chapter 17, he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica, from there to Berea, from Berea to Athens, and from Athens to Corinth, okay? And that's just background, but he is on this journey, and on this journey, he ends up in Corinth, that's the end of the road for him on that journey, he then begins to travel back, uh, and, and yet he meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who had been exiled from Rome. Uh, and they also had a lot in common. Uh, the, they had all, obviously, their Jewish heritage. They had that in common. But they also were, all of them were tent makers. Uh, they shared a common trade. Uh, so they could not only talk about the things of God together, but they could talk shop as well. So uh, we're told in Acts chapter 18 that the three of them ministered in Corinth for about a year and a half. So Paul would have had opportunity to get to know this couple very well. Uh, he would see their faith proven and tested. And uh, they they stayed in Corinth until things, they started to get difficult. There was a new procurator that came in uh, and, and he was, I don't want to go into the story, but he wasn't a great guy. Uh, but that wasn't what caused Paul to leave. It, they endured that. They stuck around for a while after that. But then Paul said, you know what, it's time to go. Our time here is finished. And he said, I want to go back to a feast in Jerusalem. And in order to do that, I have to sail to Antioch, which is in Syria, which is north of Jerusalem, and then go across the sea to Antioch and then by land down to Jerusalem because I want to be there for the feast. So he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. They set sail. On their way, uh, they stopped at Ephesus. 
uh, which, when we were in the book of Ephesians, we talked about this city. It was a large city, about a quarter of a million people in that day. And so there they landed Ephesus. Paul sees in, in Priscilla and Aquila see that God is doing a work there. And so Paul continues on by himself. Uh, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus and he goes on to Antioch, goes to the feast, uh, in Jerusalem. And then after the feast, he heads back out now on his third missionary journey. Uh, but this time he goes by land. He doesn't go by sea. He goes, he, he hikes northward, goes through the region of Galatia and then Mesopotamia and down into Achaia, which is where Greece was and all of that. So he's visiting, he's planting churches along the way. And that's where we see, as I mentioned, uh, Acts 16 through chapter 18 or so in there. Uh, so he heads back. And while he's gone, Priscilla and Aquila, they meet a guy in Ephesus by the name of Apollos. Now, Apollos, he's referred to in Acts chapter 18 as an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. This guy knew the word of God. We're talking about the Old Testament. New Testament was a work in progress at this time. So Priscilla and Aquila, they see this guy speaking in the synagogue and they, they understand, they come to understand that he only knows about John the Baptist. He only knows about the baptism of John. So they're able to share with Apollos. They begin to disciple Apollos there in Ephesus before Apollos is sensing a call to go back to Achaia, which is the province which in, within which Greece and Corinth and all of that are in. So the Apollos that you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is this guy, right? He goes from Ephesus back to Corinth. And he ends up locating there. And, and Paul, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 1, he's rebuking the Corinthians. He's saying, look, uh, it's been reported to me that, that divisions, deep divisions are existing, existing between you. Some are saying, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. And some are even saying, well, I'm of Jesus. So there, <laughs> kind of a thing. And, and, and so he rebukes them. Well, well, that's this guy that Priscilla and Aquila had had the opportunity to disciple in Ephesus. So now the Bible doesn't record for us just when Priscilla and Aquila returned to Rome, but they did. Obviously, uh, they had returned by the time that Paul wrote this letter. He's issuing a salutation. He's, he's recognizing them. But we also know that they didn't stay in Rome. Uh, just fascinating as we trace these people out through the scripture. Uh, they actually relocated back years later to Ephesus because in 2 Timothy, Paul issues a similar salutation to Priscilla and Aquila there. He's at the end of the line. He's at the end of his life. Probably in the year 61 or so, this was written in about 57. So five years, several years later, Paul is writing back to them and they're at that time back in Ephesus. So needless to say, Priscilla and Aquila had been instrumental in, in the apostle's life and in his ministry for many years. Uh, their lives were marked by faithfulness to the Lord and loyalty to Paul, both key ingredients in effective ministry. So we don't know the details, but somehow uh, this couple had risked their necks for Paul. And that's a significant statement. He doesn't say they risked their lives. He said they risked their necks. The Romans like to behead people. They would behead the apostle there at Rome later on. And he's saying that they were at risk of a capital crime on his behalf. So we don't know what the details of that were, but that really spoke to Paul. These people would go to such lengths in their loyalty to me and their, in their faithfulness to the gospel that they would go to that point. So verse five, Moving on here, he says, likewise, greet the, the church. Now, again, picture Paul is, as he's wrapping up his letter, these people's names are floating into their minds, but what that triggers is all of the memories, all of the stories, all of the background. And, and so he thinks about Priscilla and Aquila at this point. He's writing this letter. He's thinking, man, I remember, I remember Ephesus. I remember when I met him in Corinth and we made tents together and we ministered together. I remember when we went off and God was doing, and this is all coming into his mind as he's looking at this mental photo album, as he's considering the different people that he's talking about here. 
He says in verse 5, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Evidently, uh, this couple had a house church. Again, the church was organized that way. It wasn't a huge church in one place. It was a large church that was organized in multiple house churches. Uh, he says, greet the church that is in their house and greet my beloved Epineatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. So uh, Epineatus was someone who evidently Paul felt very strongly towards. Again, his name comes into Paul's mind and Paul immediately uh, connects that to the fact that he really loved this guy. Uh, he calls him my beloved. Uh, he does that with four different people here in chapter 16 of Romans. Uh, also, the thing about Epineatus is he was likely one of the first converts in Achaia. Now, Achaia, again, is the Roman province that is uh, that all of Greece would be Achaia. Now, Mesopotamia was across the top, right? That was the northern part. That's where Thessalonica was, was in Mesopotamia. But as you drop south and you go down to Athens and Corinth and all of that, it was like the state. That was the territory, the Roman colony uh, of uh, Achaia that he talks about here. And he was probably, as Paul went and evangelized there, one of the first converts that was part of his ministry. So uh, again, remember Corinth in Achaia was where Paul wrote this letter. So verse six, he says, greet Mary who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So we don't know anything about Mary other than she was part of the church at Rome and she'd evidently worked hard to further the gospel. That's what he says here. Now Andronicus and Junia, a couple here, were evidently fellow Jews as well as those who had been in prison for the sake of the gospel. Now we don't know if they were actual cellmates of Paul's or if it was simply known to Paul that they had been jailed for their testimony of Christ. We, he doesn't say. Uh, he just talks about them being fellow prisoners. So another interesting thing about this, because Andronicus is a Greek name, it's likely that he was a Hellenistic Jew. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment, talk about that, about the distinctions between Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. This is important. It's important in understanding another part of the scripture that we'll look at in a minute. Palestinian or Hebraic Jews prided themselves on the fact that they had always lived in the land of Israel. They uh, had observed the patriarchs of Israel and all of that. And they used the language, Hebrew language, that their father spoke. Now, uh, the other thing is they were near the temple. They were They had access to the temple. They rec- regularly worshipped there. However, on the other hand, Hellenistic Jews from other parts of the world, they were jealous of the first group and made to feel like outsiders. Uh, unfortunately, the strife between the two groups was not automatically eliminated by their conversion to Christianity. So going and looking at this a little further, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, We read this. Now in those days when a number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenistic Jews were, uh, they got pretty uptight with the, the Hebrew Jews, the Hebraic Jews. And they said, look, you guys are ignoring us. And, and it may have been this, uh, when Luke writes this, he uses the strife between these two groups as sort of a pivot point for the reason that there was a problem there. But in a wonderful example of godly wisdom and Christian unity, the early church worked through that particular dispute and the office of deacon was formed. This is where the office of deacon in the Christian church originates. Yeah, the, the apostle said, look, we're too busy to wait tables. We've got to have other people that can come in and do this. One of those guys was Stephen. Never underestimate the office of deacon. If you look in the book of Acts at Stephen's, um, the things that he said that drove the Jews to stone him, this guy was anointed of God. I mean, he was, he was, he really understood the, the history of Israel and he understood the gospel of Christ. So, Andronicus and Junium must have been well regarded among the apostles. 
having become Christians before Paul. That would put their conversion somewhere in the first three or four years after Pentecost. So they had been Christians at this time for over 20 years. And so that's these guys. <laughs> they, uh, they had been instrumental in the church. They had been instrumental in Paul's life. And he recognizes them for it. Verse 8. He says, greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Again, there's that term, my beloved. Now, Amplius was a common name. It was often given to slaves in the empire. Uh, once again, it's significant that he addresses him as my beloved. This is someone that Paul had a personal affection towards. And it indicates, and, and again, uh, we get, we kind of skim the surface in this because Paul is closing this letter out. But the stories that must have been going through Paul's mind, the, the, the times that they shared together, perhaps humorous times, perhaps very serious times, perhaps, uh, you know, overseeing different aspects of the church together, we don't know. But we do know that these people were important to the apostles. Greet Urbanus, my, our fellow worker in Christ, and Statues, my beloved. Now, I got to stop here, and it just reminds me of something. Years ago, when I was doing jail ministry, uh, my pastor, Bob, and I, I was assistant pastor at the time of a church in Northern California, we were going into the county jail every week. And the way that they set this thing up, I I would doubt that they do it now, but it was... It was a little, it was a little frightening. They would take, uh, it was a county jail, but the county jail rented space to the feds. And so this jail was always full. If it was just the people that were from that county, there would have been 10 people, but it was a hundred bed jail. And they made a lot of money on renting space out to people who were on federal wraps. And so whenever we did a Bible study, we would be able to tell the hard timing, the guys that were totally tatted up and, you know, all of that. And it's fine. We didn't care. It's like the gospel's going to go out regardless of the audience that God gives us. Well, the, and some of the, a lot of the inmates, to be fair, would see it as an opportunity to get out of their cell for an hour and a half. And so they would come in and, and you'd kind of see them kind of spacing off and all of that. But hey, the word of God goes out, doesn't come back void. So we're counting on that. When they let these guys into the, the we were in this big room. It was a general purpose room. There was a bunch of weight benches and all of that uh, off in one corner. And then there was a whole big area for guys to come in. And they sat on the floor. <laughs> and and But Bob and I would stand at the door when the guards let the prisoners into the room. And we would introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm John. Hi, I'm Bob. And, and shake their hand. And, and they would give us their names and all of that. And then we would go through our study. The part that totally repeatedly blew me away was we would stand at the door on the way out when the guards came back and the guards would lock us in with these guys there was no guard in the room we were there for an hour and a half <laughs> and i would look for cameras and couldn't find any <laughs> it was just it was a little stressful in that way well the guards would come to get the guys and we would stand at the door to greet them on their way out Bob remembered every single man's name. I have no idea how he did it. I thought this is supernatural or something. It was just, it was beyond me. He had such a capacity to remember people's names. And I remembered, as I mentioned last week, uh, that when we look at this section, Paul is, he's drawing inward. He is getting personal with these people. And it's impressive to me to see here just how many people that Paul remembered by name, uh, and how many, to one degree or another, had endeared themselves to him. So as he's writing to these people, as he's going through these images in his mind, uh, it, it is definitely striking a chord with him as to the importance that many of these people had in his life. Uh, and it just reminded me of Bob remembering each person's name. Verse 10, he says, Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Now, we don't know, but we see in verse 10 that Apelles' faith was proven. Again, there's a story behind that. I look forward to getting to heaven to finding out, well, Apelles, how were you proven? <laughs> how are you approved? Uh, there's got to be something in Paul's mind. But again, he's summarizing here as he's issuing these salutations to these different ones. And Apelli's faith was proven. 
So in verse 11, he speaks of Herodian. Now, that would have been an unusual name in Rome. <laughs> Some scholars suggest that this may have been either a family member or a slave, a former slave of somebody who had served in one of the royal lines of the Herods because the Herods were a big deal in the first century. Now, we don't know. We don't, we don't, we don't have any background on that. It's just an unusual name. But Paul calls him a kinsman or a relative. Uh, so it's assumed that Herodian is Jewish as well. So interestingly, in verses 10 and 11, he speaks of greeting people's households now. So as he shifts gears, he's going away from looking at people individually to looking at households. Uh, it's sort of he keeps widening the circle here. Uh, but we don't, again, we don't understand how Herodian fit into this. We don't know anything about him other than what's written here. Just an interesting thing. So in verse 10, it's those of the household of Aristobulus, as we look here. In verse 11, is those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. So again, unclear whether this is a matter of first century Koine Greek, uh, the syntax that they used, or if Paul is intentionally leaving the heads of the household out. When he says of the household of, he doesn't recognize the individual who is the head of the household. And again, I don't, I don't know, and frankly, it's not important. We just know that he expands now to talking about people's households. The bigger picture is he's expanding from identifying individuals to identifying families. Verse 12, he says, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet beloved, the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Find a Kleenex here. So Paul adds three more names uh, to his mental photo album here uh, for his readers in Rome to greet on his behalf. So when he talks about Tryphena and Tryphosa, remember, now he's talking about families. It's likely that they were sisters. Uh, their names come from a, a root word that means delicate or dainty. Uh, and Paul describes them as women who worked hard in the Lord. Uh, love to see, you know, if I were in the first century, how cool would it be that my name was included in this letter that the apostle wrote? Now, when he talks about Persis, again, this is, it's a slave name, a predominantly slave name, or a former slave. Uh, he's also described as one who worked hard in the Lord, also who was beloved as well. So, verse 13, moving through here, uh, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Verse 13 is packed. <laughs> now, some have speculated that the Rufus mentioned here is the son of Simon the Cyrene, the man who was compelled by the Romans to carry Jesus' cross. And that might be. I want you to bear with me here. I'm going to give you some linkage here. Uh, because at first, I actually changed my notes as I studied this out. As I, I kind of went, meh, whatever. But then as I looked at it, I began to see that there are some things, there's a common thread here that that could be the case. Now, in Mark 15, 21, we're told as Mark is talking about Jesus going to the cross and bearing his cross, it says, they there, then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So it's not altogether inconceivable that this man, having bore the cross of Christ, would have connected afterwards with his disciples. Think about it. Uh, somehow Mark came to know this guy, and he actually knows the names of his sons. So decades later, Mark, Mark writes his gospel, uh, and he guess where Mark wrote from? When Mark wrote his gospel, guess where it was? He wrote from Rome. He was in Rome. Uh, and, and he refers to Simon the Cyrenian through his sons, uh, Rufus and Alexander. So another interesting point in verse 13 is reference to Rufus's mother as Paul's own mother as well. Now, Paul had left all that he had in Judaism. We see that in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, in his previous life, he had left it all. He said, I, it's, it's gone. But it's interesting here that he refers to this woman as his mother. And I would submit to you, in much the same way as when 
Jesus was on the cross and he told John, behold, your mother. It was his mother in the faith. Uh, don't know. Could have been his actual blood mother uh, who he had gotten out of uh, Jerusalem or wherever. Or she could have lived in, in Tarsus where he was from and relocated to Rome. We don't know. Uh, what we do know is that he looks upon her with exceptional favor as he refers to his, her as his mother as well. So uh, in verse 14, moving on here, continuing to flip the pages, look at these different photos of these people, uh, <laughs> metaphorically, of course. He says, greet asynchronous, phlegon, phlegon, that sounds like a cold symptom. Um, (laughs) Sorry, greet asynchronous, phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus Nereus and his sister, uh, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. So now expanding beyond families, he's talking about groups. So he wraps up this list uh, with the people whom he wishes for his readers in Rome to greet. And he ends by simply listing names instead of offering quick commendations or descriptions of each one as he did when he started. Uh, they were likely members, when he talks about them here, they were likely members of separate house churches in Rome, those who are with them. So uh, he ends this section by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Uh, Paul had remained connected to many of the churches that he planted. As I mentioned before, he didn't plant the church in Rome, but as we see here, he knew a great many of the people who were here. Uh, I would submit to you that probably among the ones that we've looked at this morning were the people that planted the church. Uh, we don't know. Again, I want to be careful. Where the scripture is silent, so also ought we be. And yet, it's a pretty good guess that the people who had planted that church are among the people that he talks about and that he greets here. Now, when he talks about greet one another with a holy kiss, I think that's interesting. Uh, that was something, it was a very common thing in the first century to do. It was, it was so common that in Luke 7.45, Jesus rebukes a Pharisee for not. He says, he says, uh, uh, in Luke 7.45, he says, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. He had been invited to a Pharisee's house. Remember, a woman came in who had a vial, uh, alabaster vial of very costly perfume. She anoints his feet and she wipes his feet with her tears. Uh, she kisses his feet. So what he's saying is, is here is greet one another. The church in the West, we don't do that. There are still a lot of cultures in, in Europe and other places that do. Uh, you, you see, you know, like in the movies where the guy will, give you a kiss on both sides. And I don't know, perhaps you know, Anton, about those particular customs from the Netherlands. But the point is, is that he's saying, greet one another with a deep, deep respect and a genuine affection. We could translate that for our culture to this. Very important that we esteem one another as more important than ourselves. Very important that as we come together as a church, as we come together as a body, that we set our differences aside, we leave them at the door, and then we come in with a genuine concern, a genuine caring, a genuine love for one another. Uh, folks, when I stand back and I, I, when I zoom out on this passage, I see there's just a, a stellar example of Christian love. There's a stellar example of pastoral love that I ascribe and aspire to myself. I love you guys. And I want to be the person that, and I want us to be the church where people say, you know what? They're kind of different there. They really genuinely love each other. They genuinely care. And I love that that's the report that I hear from many in this body. Praise God. Very, very important. So metaphorically speaking, Paul now closes the family album shifts to share some immediate concerns that he has as he wraps up. 
So in closing this letter, he's got some final exhortations and warnings uh, for the people, the church in Rome. Verse 17, I'll go through verse 20. He says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Notice he says, contrary to the doctrine. There are times where we take issue over doctrinal matters. If it's a major doctrine of the Christian faith, I'm going to take issue with that. If it's minor stuff, you can believe what you want. I'm not going to divide with you over that. But he says, note those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which you've learned. He says, avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words, flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. That's fascinating to me. We'll get back to that. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Question. Are we, the body of Christ, called to walk in unity? It's another question. Are we, the body of Christ, called to walk in truth? Obviously. The answer to both of those questions is a resounding yes. Unity and truth. Truth without let me let me lay out for you what the absence of one side or the other of this looks like. Truth without unity leads to pride. Straight up, it leads to a prideful stance. That's because you're hanging on truth. Remember, the Bible tells us that in the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. He did not go with grace at the expense of truth, nor did he go with truth at the expense of grace. Look at the woman caught in the act of adultery in the very act. You see grace and truth there. He says, where are your accusers? I don't know. They're gone. Well, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your sinful life. Grace and truth. So truth without unity leads to pride. Unity at the expense of truth leads to a complete departure from the gospel itself. Very dangerous. That's why it's essential that we walk in both. As we come together as believers, we must understand the vital importance of unifying around the truth of God's word. It's what we've got. It is the, 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 the cord that binds us. Yes, the gospel of Christ is what binds us together, is revealed through God's holy word. So how do we know it is truth? How do we know that the Bible is truth? Oh, that's a whole different study. And yet, I will go with what Jesus himself proclaims. In John chapter 17, in the great high priestly prayer, as Jesus is pouring his heart out to the Father on his way to the cross, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Cleanse them. That's what that means. Your word is truth. That's good enough for me. In verse 18, Paul characterizes this person as someone with smooth words or flattering speech, the deceiver, the one sowing discord. The church, the body of Christ, folks, it's a whole lot bigger than our assembly here, obviously. And I encourage you from time to time, have a worldview, not a worldly view, but a worldview of the body of Christ. It's true Christians everywhere. It's the largest living organism on earth. However, look around and and not at each other. I will never forget the Sunday I said, look around. And everybody started looking at each other. And I'm like, no, not what I meant. But look around. Look at some some of the so-called big names in the American church today. When Joel Osteen tells me I deserve to be the best version of me that I can be, I don't find that in God's word. When Bethel Church in Reading holds to a belief called Seven Mountains Mandate, that Christians must influence seven mountains, including government and media and business and education, in order for Jesus to return to earth, I don't find that in God's word. And that's just two examples. Folks, as we hurl towards the end of the age, deception is rampant. 
That's one of the things, when they came to Jesus there, and at the, it, we read about it at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where they say, tell us, Lord, when will these things be? What will be the signs of your coming? The first thing, he tells them two things. He says, first of all, see to it that you are not deceived. The second thing he tells them is, don't be afraid. These things have to happen. Folks, uh, every morning when we get out of bed right now, uh, and I want to pray as we wrap up the service this morning, I want to pray for our world. We are hanging by a thread. I, I look at the prospect of, of nuclear war. I was explaining to my wife the old Cold War doctrine. It's called the MAD doctrine, mutually assured destruction, where everybody fires on everybody else and kind of destroys the whole thing. I was explaining that to her last night. And, uh, and folks, it's not far-fetched. It wouldn't take much. But take courage. See to it that you're not deceived when it comes to spiritual matters. And don't be afraid. He's got this. He really is transcendent. What that word means when we look at the theological meaning of the word transcendent and, and Jesus is, God is transcendent, it means he's over all of it. And he's totally intimately in control, even when it looks like hell on earth. I take courage in that. Smooth words, flattering speech, but no real foundation in truth. Be careful. These guys and many other deceivers, according to Paul here, he says their God is their belly. What does he mean by that? What he means is that their God is their own gain, their own fatness. He says in verse 19, to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. I love that. Uh, It's similar to saying, you know, the best defense is a good offense. Be wise in what is good. Study God's word. Get down into the, the, the nitty gritty of God's word. Check it out for yourself. Study it with a whole heart, with a, with an attitude of, Lord, open this to me. We prayed that before the service this morning. Lord, your sheep hear your voice and they follow you. My consistent prayer as I stand before you and teach God's word is, Lord, don't let them hear my voice. Let them hear yours. And let them follow you. Let their walk with you deepen. Let their understanding of you widen. Because they're your people and you love them. The point in this, I don't need to spend countless hours studying every group or ism out there uh, that's either overtly or subtly putting forth false doctrine. I don't need to do that. Yes, in being simple concerning evil, I do need to be aware. The devil goes about seeking who he may devour. That's true. And he's laying out formulas and methods all the time to do just that. However, being wise in what is good is where I want to spend the bulk of my time and energy. Out of that, I think about Paul in Philippians chapter 3, where he speaks of the perverse religious system that he had spent his life in prior to that Damascus Road experience where he was converted to Christ. He says in Philippians 3, he says, I count it all as lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my personal pronoun, my Lord. That's being wise in what is good, simple concerning evil. Now Paul shifts again, he pivots here, and he sends greetings from the people in Corinth as we begin to wrap up this morning. Uh, He says in verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker... Uh, the interesting, the Greek word is synergos there. It's where we get the word synergy. Timothy working with me, the synergy being the output of our combined efforts is greater than our efforts themselves. So Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. So Paul, here he apparently he allowed his scribe, Tertius is the guy's name, to add a greeting of his own. Now, nothing is known about Tertius other than what is said in this verse. Uh, but he was the guy who got to write this letter to this church at Rome uh, by the Apostle Paul. And now it was common 
in that era for letters to be dictated by an author uh, to a scribe. And they even had a name. The guy was called an amanusis. Uh, that the, that was the guy that wrote down, that took the dictation and wrote down the letters that we see. That's why Paul in another place says, see with what large letters I write with my own hand. In other words, this is so super important, I'm not relying on my scribe. I want you to see I'm writing this myself. So it was a common thing. Verse 23, he says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city greets you, and Cordus, a brother. So Gaius is probably the same Gaius. It was a common name in the empire, but he was probably the same brother that's mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.14 as the man he baptized while he was in Corinth. Uh, he's apparently staying at Gaius's house. Now, he also describes Gaius as the host to the entire church. Uh, probably not every Christian in Corinth, but what he's saying is that he probably is meaning that he was the host of a house church there, probably a large church in Corinth. We don't know anything about Erastus or Cordus here, other than Erastus was the, was the city treasurer in the, in the city of Corinth, which was a large city. He would have had a lot of responsibility. Uh, and that Cordus was a fellow believer. So, Paul says in verse 24, and this is verse 24 is an interesting verse, a bit controversial, but we're going to we're going to solve that right now. <laughs> he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, this is a reiteration of what we see in verse 20, uh, where he says the same thing. Interesting. Uh, most early manuscripts don't contain this and many translations go from verse 23 to verse 25. However, it's here and it's not false doctrine. It's not heresy. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is an extremely important truth. So that God has allowed it to be here, we will allow it to be here as well. Not going to make it a point of controversy. Could be, couldn't, maybe is, maybe isn't. But we know that that particular understanding is critical. So verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest. And by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. That's a mouthful. When Paul speaks of the mystery here, the mystery that's kept secret since the world began, we know that the, the work of redemption was in the heart of God before anything was ever created. We also know that He's not referring to a mystery that is not knowable. When he talks about it being a mystery, it's a mystery that was not previously known. It was a mystery that was revealed with the first coming of Christ. When he, the fulfillment of God's promise all the way back in the garden, came and accomplished the work of redemption on man's behalf because we are absolutely helpless when it comes to that. So how has the mystery become known? He says here, through the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. Again, the emphasis we see here upon God's divinely inspired word. Very important. This epistle began and now ends with the term for obedience to the faith. It's right there in in chapter one, in the very first, I think the first paragraph or in the first or second paragraph. He talks about obedience to the faith. A better rendering of that is the obedience of faith. In other words, in the Old Testament, they had the obedience of the 613 laws of Moses. Here, he says, you know what? All you got to do is trust that Jesus did it. You have to trust in the work, the power of God, the gospel for salvation to the Jew first, also to the Greek, to everyone who believes, to the whosomevers. So when he's talking about this, he's talking about the emphasis on God's word. And then he says this obedience of faith. He starts again. These are bookends in the book of Romans. It starts with the obedience of faith. It ends with the obedience of faith and everything in between. Everything that we have looked at these months and months, I think 13 months we've been in this book. Every single thing is appropriated 
by faith. You either believe it or you don't. Many times along the way, I have shared, you know, take this to heart. It'll change your life. And I guarantee you, as you study the book of Romans on your own, as we now wrap up this glorious book, it will change. It will change the way you see yourself in God's plan. It will change the way you see yourself in the world. It will change the way that you interact and behave with other people. Because it is the power of God to salvation. And we are called to the obedience of faith. Do you believe it? In John chapter 11, Jesus is with Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus had died and Jesus, that word got to Jesus. He was up in the northern, in the Galilee region. And they said, you got to come. Lazarus is really sick. He's, he's dying. And Jesus said, let's stick around. They stayed there four more days. And then they went down to Bethany where Lazarus was. And Lazarus had been dead all that time. So Martha comes out and she says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And this is how Jesus responds to her. Uh, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he, I just picture his eyes piercing into her and saying, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? He was leading her to the obedience of faith through the agency of the Holy Spirit by the authority of the word of God. He still does. He still leads people to the obedience of faith. Folks, the gospel is not complicated. It's by his spirit through his word. He says, come to me, believe, choose to trust that the things that are contained in this book are real. And that they're not only real, they have a direct impact on your life and mine. They reveal what's going on out there, outside of the church's doors, as well as what's going on in every heart here. Do you believe this? Do you believe that this is the transforming power of God unleashed in your life by simply trusting it to be so? That's the obedience of faith. I love that Paul closes this letter by talking about that, and remember, it's not faith in faith. A lot of people say well, out there in the world, well, well my faith, is da, 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 da. and it's like, well, wait a minute, there's an object to your faith, and the object is Jesus, the Christ, the one who went to the cross and died on your behalf. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in the one who has the ability to give you life. Not only life, but that more abundantly, God's word declares. Last verse. In the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 27. To God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. And all God's people said, amen, amen.